Welcome to Life in Purple, providing you with the latest from women entrepreneurs, amazing mums, human interest stories and celebrity guests. Your host, Laura Sprague, discusses women's topics such as success, empowerment, perseverance, lifestyle and much more. Laura also offers a fun and unique perspective while providing listeners with valuable tips on how to successfully conquer the many issues women may face. Come experience your life in purple. And now, here's your host, the life coach with the most, Laura Sprague. Hello, Lip Talk Nation. Welcome to Life in Purple. I'm your host, Laura Sprague, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I want to say thank you, Lip Talk Nation, for your support. I love your feedback, and I really appreciate the stories that have come in letting us know what a difference Life in Purple is making. The more voices that join together, the louder our community becomes to make a difference. On our most recent episode, we had Gloria Gaiden Corona who is the author of When the Music Stops, sharing her story of being married to a POW, a prisoner of war, and raising awareness for PTSD. If you are tuning in for the first time, check out liptalknation.com, and there you will find more resources, such as my personal coaching, blog, and much, much more. On our show today, we have licensed psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Eastern Kentucky University, Dr. Melinda Moore. She regularly trains clinicians and advocates on collaborative assessment and management of suicidality. Her passion to help raise awareness for suicide prevention and to teach others about post-traumatic growth emerged from her own experience with suicide. Dr. Moore is the chair of the Kentucky Suicide Prevention Group Incorporated, which is a statewide suicide prevention nonprofit. She is constantly researching and finding ways to educate others on PTG. Welcome to the show, Melinda. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is an honor, Melinda, to have you on the show. Like I said earlier when I was chatting with you, I love this topic, post-traumatic growth. A lot of people, and I believe everyone should know about it because people can overcome traumas. People can overcome the, the suicidal you know, thoughts. And so thank you so much again for being on the show. You're welcome. So I'm so excited. Melinda, I cannot wait to talk about PTG, post-traumatic growth, and share with Lip Talk Nation your story and all that you are doing. But before we get into all of that, will you tell us where you are from and how you got your start? Absolutely. Well, I'm actually back in my home state of Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky in Louisville and then graduated from high school in Ashland, uh, Kentucky, and then spent a number of years in school at Ohio State University and then lived in the D.C. area for about 10 years and got my Ph.D. there at Catholic University of America. And then I decided, made the decision to come back to my home state because I really wanted to be back home. Very, I have lots of um, ties to communities here in Kentucky, and I really wanted to serve the people here in Kentucky. So I'm back home in my state of Kentucky. Woohoo! 
okay, so I have to tell you, I used to live in Kentucky as well. So how great is that? I lived <laughs> in Winchester, Kentucky. So I'm very familiar with Louisville and Ashland. So Good. that's awesome. And I really appreciate you and your vulnerability that we're going to get ready to get into in the interview. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're a huge advocate in raising awareness for suicide prevention, along with wearing many hats. You're a licensed psychologist, your assistant professor at EKU and founder of posttraumaticgrowth.com. And you are constantly doing the research to help others. What I really want the listeners to glean from you is the research that you've done on PTGNY. But will you share with us first why you want to raise awareness for suicide prevention? Well, my own experience with suicide uh, about 20 years ago um, really introduced me to the problem of suicide, the fact that individuals who are suicidal and who die by suicide are in enormous pain, and the fact that we're really, we've only recently sort of on a public policy level and sort of a national level begun addressing the problem of suicide in the United States and in the various states' efforts. Um, But I'm also acutely aware of the people that are left behind in the wake of these suicides. They are definitely the forgotten individuals. Um, And oftentimes, a lot of the cultural stigma around suicide somehow gets conveyed to them, and people feel very uncomfortable around them. They uh, they themselves feel stigmatized by having lost a loved one to suicide. It's it's not... um, a death like cancer or a car accident. It's a different kind of death. And as a result, the grieving after a suicide loss is very different, I think. And I think we have not even begun to really address the needs of what we call the suicide bereaved or those people who have lost a loved one to suicide. And my awareness around this and my desire to raise awareness around the problem of suicide and then also the needs of the suicide bereaved came out of my own experience 20 years ago when I lost my husband, Connor, to suicide. Uh, It was very unexpected. We were both, um, I was working full-time for the director of health in Ohio. I was a speechwriter and did a lot of policy work and was writing about every cause of morbidity and mortality, but it wasn't until my husband, Connor, who was a doctoral student in chemistry, killed himself that I, I really was introduced to this subject on a very personal level and began to realize that we weren't talking about suicide as a preventable cause of death, a preventable cause of behavioral health, um, and something we should be addressing. And then I had, of course, the personal experience of feeling very stigmatized, very isolated, very rejected, both personally and professionally, as a result of having lost my husband to suicide. So I think that was the beginning of my kind of passion for suicide prevention and then I was living the life of somebody who was suicide bereaved and feeling all of the stigma and the shame and the rejection and the lack of support around that experience. But interestingly enough, uh, that was also where my interest in post-traumatic growth uh, emerged from. I later, years later, realized that that experience made me a much stronger person, a much more compassionate person, much more informed person. person. I, I have a brand new career as a result of that experience. And it's not that we experience growth in the absence of pain, but it's that we experience growth and certain kinds of growth within the context of enormously painful events. So that's, that's, the, that's the hard thing for a lot of people to capture around, or to understand around post-traumatic growth. Melinda, thank you so much for sharing that really vulnerable part of your story. I am so sorry that you had to go through that. However, I know 
just from researching you that, you know, and all that you are doing that you have truly conquered and that your passion is very loud and contagious with others. So Lip Talk Nation, I want you to grab a hold of how vulnerable she was to admit this to us and to share her story and to teach others how we can overcome it. And I love how you pointed out also, Melinda, that you are stronger and you even have more compassion. But like you said, most people don't reach out to those who have lost someone to suicide. And I know that hits home for you personally. And I want to wrap my arms right around you, but I know that you're doing great things. I have watched some of your videos and have done some of my own research, like I said, on what you are doing. And I love it. I discovered PTG last year and I recently started talking about it with Lip Talk Nation. So will you share with us exactly what post-traumatic growth is? Yeah, post-traumatic growth is not a new concept. It's actually a concept that's been around, I mean, probably for thousands of years. I mean, you see it in Greek and Roman literature. You see it in every major world religion. You see it in the Bible. You see these uh, episodes of people really struggling, but as a result of that struggle, really having experiences of profound growth. And 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 so, but it really wasn't. Even though it's been around for a long time, we haven't really called it this post-traumatic growth for a very short period of time. Actually, it wasn't until um, Viktor Frankl wrote his book *Man's Search for Meaning* that I think psychologists began thinking about the concept or the, what we call a construct of post-traumatic growth. And then it was the mid-90s when two researchers at the University of North Carolina, two psychologists. Uh, Lawrence Calhoun and Richard Tedeschi, who who coined the phrase post-traumatic growth, and then they developed an inventory called the post-traumatic growth inventory. So they're really the fathers of this new modern idea of post-traumatic growth. But that, like I said, the the idea is not is not old; it's quite ancient. And the idea is that and an individual will go through kind of a shattering event in their life. It has to shatter their what we call assumptive worldview. So how they understand the world, sort of their goals and hopes and aspirations for the future. And it's in that shattering of that experience, that experience, it shatters them, that assumptive worldview shattering, where they have to then reconstruct their world. And it's the cognitive engagement with the event. So thinking about the event and something called rumination. There's an early kind of rumination, which is more of an intrusive, they call it brooding rumination, um, where you kind of, you you know you kind of think about how how am I going to you know survive this experience and then later there's what they call reflective rumination and the idea is it's out of this reflective rumination where people go back and think about the event that they found to be shattering um, that then they begin to reconstruct their world and that's where meaning comes out of the event and then the idea of post traumatic growth then really comes out of that event the idea though is if somebody does not cognitively engaged so if they avoid thinking about a shattering experience they may not experience post-traumatic growth um, there's still some debate about what post-traumatic growth is and how you measure it but I and I, so I think in a sense while it's a really old concept we've only just begun studying it over the last 20 years and I think there's probably a lot of work to be done in terms of measuring it and understanding exactly how it works in individuals lives I thank you so much for answering this and you are exactly right that I think they're just hitting the iceberg, you know, just the tip of it with the information. They need to do more research definitely on PTG. So thank you for explaining it with with how they, somebody needs to go through this shattering event and how you talked about early rumination and then the reflective rumination. You talk about two types and I really appreciate it. 
uh, Melinda. So some of the listeners are struggling, like I said, with understanding PTG and how you can grow and suffer at the same time. I know you have some of this information on your website, but I would love for you to explain this a little bit more in detail for us. Well, I think that it's a subtle process. Let me say it that way. I think a lot of people, and I, I will tell you, I was one of those people that did not appreciate exactly how much I had changed as a result of my husband's suicide, having that enormously painful experience, and then being left alone, and then people rejecting me as a result. So it wasn't just the suicide. It was the fact that I had also been rejected by people. It was, and and, I, and I, I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying that they were so uncomfortable. I think it brought up a lot of issues for them. So it was very difficult. The people that I thought I could count on for support and compassion in the aftermath of my husband's suicide really weren't able to give it. And but, but what surprised me is that there were people who did step up to the plate and were enormously compassionate, enormously supportive. So I, I kind of, you know, while the people that I would have expected to have been there weren't there, there were people that were there. And then I think um, Tedeschi and Calhoun, when they conceptualize the idea of post-traumatic growth, they they talk about the fact that the growth occurs actually closer to the trauma. And what happens is people, they ruminate, they engage with what's happened, they think about it, they think about it a lot. I thought for, you know, for two years, I thought about nothing else really than my husband's suicide and, you know, trying to understand it, trying to wrap my head around it. It was unexpected and there were a lot of things about the event that were it just I was I was wholly unprepared for, and were were shocking to me. So lots of information came at me, and I had to understand it. So I spent about two years thinking about it, and I think as a result of that, it changed me. I kept going back to it and thinking about it, and it, but it changed me. And I didn't um, hold in my feelings. I ve- I very much allowed myself to grieve in a very public way. I went to mass every week and I'm a I'm a person of faith and I'm definitely have gotten stronger in terms of my faith as a result of this experience. And that's actually one of the areas of growth that we tend to experience when we experience post traumatic growth. But I would go to church and I would cry publicly. I I went to see therapists and therapists didn't know how to help me frankly because many therapists haven't been trained in how to work with a suicide bereaved. So I just kept exploring and I kept reading and that really led me to a lot of literature around suffering. I became very engaged in what is what does it mean to suffer and what is the purpose of suffering. And so I was asking a lot of kind of big picture questions. And I think though that journey, that kind of intellectual journey, led me on this path where even more growth was created within me. And so it's a very complicated, nuanced um, experience. But I think if you can think about the things that are changing as a result of your experience with whatever the event is, whether it's the loss of somebody through a death or the loss, you know, you're getting a a bad diagnosis or you've lost a job even and you don't know what you're going to do next. If you can think about the changes that have occurred within you, and typically there are about five areas that we see growth in. We see when we measure, um, we do a measure of post-traumatic growth, there's a there's a scale, like I said earlier, the post-traumatic growth inventory, where you can, and you can find this online, where it measures an overall uh, score, but then there are what they call five domains or five factors. And the first one is how you relate to others. Are you more compassionate? Are the relationships you have, more the, the ones that have been intimate in the past, have you grown closer to those individuals? Um, also, are there new possibilities in your life? As a result of this experience, are you volunteering? 
Have you changed professions? Did you decide to go back to school? Did you decide to change jobs? You know, are there new sort of vocational or avocational uh, venues available to you? Also, people will oftentimes find an enhanced sense of personal strength. It's not that they're bulletproof, but they feel like I've been through the worst and I probably can withstand almost anything that will happen to me. And then the fourth domain is what they call spiritual change. And that's not necessarily a sense of being more religious, but definitely feeling more connected with the spiritual world and being more spiritual in general. And then the last domain is appreciation for life. Just having a, a profound appreciation for what you have, for, for being kind of mindful of your day, being mindful of the things that are in your life rather than the things that are not in your life. And I think that people who are going through struggles right now, who maybe have gone through profound losses, that are feeling a lot of pain and are struggling with this idea of post-traumatic growth, you know, where is this in my life? I think if they look into themselves and look at some of the changes in their life, they will see changes in these these areas. And they will perhaps be able to appreciate the kind of growth that they have experienced and perhaps will continue to experience as they move on with their lives. Melinda, something stands out to me. So like I have this radar of going, oh my goodness, she figured it out. But what you did, you told me that you kept exploring to find the answers, which led you to find post-traumatic growth, which led you to understand that you wanted to become more spiritual. Like you, you told us that you grieved in a public way. And that's what I want to point out to Lip Talk Nation is that we oftentimes feel like we cannot show feelings. We should suppress it or sweep it under the rug. It's not real. And what you told me is that there were friends. You have friends that all of a sudden stayed away from you. But I love that you told us that you kept exploring and you still did it in a public way. And Melinda, I believe that people fear what they don't know. And that's why we have to keep talking about it. And that's really what I love, you know, researching you out and love what you're doing is because you are raising awareness for this taboo topic, which is suicide, you know, raising awareness for suicide prevention. And then you talk about the five things that change with a person. You know, think about the changes in you. I love that challenge that you gave us. You know, how you relate to others. Are there new possibilities in your life? You have an enhanced sense of personal strength. Then you talk about the spiritual change and appreciation for life. And I was shaking my head yes during this because I have personally experienced all of these right here, you know, with my past, I didn't lose anyone. It wasn't over a death, but it was the loss of childhood innocence. Lip Talk Nation knows my story, being a survivor of child molestation, which caused the PTSD symptoms. And then, I don't know, something inside of me happened when I realized that I could grieve it. So I allowed myself to do that. So thank you for explaining this so clearly. Lip Talk Nation, I hope that you're taking notes. I say this often to them. They need to take notes every time they listen to an episode because right here, Melinda, you have so much value to offer. Uh, so thank you. You mentioned that a person has to have a shattering event. You mentioned it just previously to experience this post-traumatic growth in your articles and seminars. Will you explain it in detail for us of what a shattering event is? It can be anything. I mean, not in, I'm not going to say anything, but it, it's there's you know they say that there's different roads to Rome, and I think the shattering event can be a death, it can be the loss of a person, you know, a meaningful relationship. Post-traumatic growth has been studied in a broad range of losses and traumas. It's been studied in breast cancer survivors. It's been studied in 9-11 survivors, Madrid train bombing survivors, HIV and AIDS patients, people who have lost loved ones in motor vehicle accidents, 
adolescent cancer survivors, Vietnam POWs, bereaved and bereaved parents. And I'm the first researcher to have ever looked at suicide bereaved parents. So when I was doing my PhD at Catholic University of America, I was actually working for Dr. David Jobes, who developed the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, which is a suicide-focused treatment. It's one of a few, just a couple of empirically supported um, approaches to treating suicidal people. And I was doing treatment research, and he knew my past, he knew my background. And when I was getting ready to do my dissertation, I thought I might do something on uh, treatment, suicide-focused treatment, and he and he knew I was interested in in positive psychology and post-traumatic growth, and he also knew my background as a suicide survivor, or suicide bereaved individual, and he said, you know, I really think you need to explore this. And so, you know, it's interesting on a very personal level, the loss of my husband taught me so much. I mean, I experienced so much growth, but in a in a sense, it also really it changed my life in an even more profound way professionally when I got into the research of post traumatic growth because I began to realize it can be many many things. It can be molestation, and I'm I really appreciate Laura your your um, I was unaware of your story, but I appreciate your openness. My husband actually, my husband Connor who killed himself, was um, a, a molestation. Um, he had been molested as a child. I'm, I'm I don't think he was a molestation survivor because he did kill himself. And I think young men, I think one of the things that we haven't done successfully is really explore what happens with young men and women, of course, who have this just shattering experience early in their life. And with him, unfortunately, he wasn't able to survive it. And so it's meaningful to me that you tell me this because I think that is perhaps one of the most grievous tragedies in an individual's life. And I think, you know, that... um, so many things, I think, can be considered um, shattering life events, and that's certainly one of them. Well, I really appreciate you, and thank you for you know validating that part of my story, because I believe that a lot of people who do struggle with suicidal thoughts have had a tragedy in their past. That's just my conviction, and it's not necessarily anything that I can prove. So I, I appreciate you sharing that part. But you know, something happened inside of you because of him and his story that you can carry on, and I'm not justifying anything that happened. However, I admire you and the strength that you have right now. And first, I want to say congratulations on finishing your PhD to continue on, especially after that process of trying to figure out why. And you turned it in to your why instead of dwelling on that event. And uh, so I'm thank you so much for supporting me as, 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 as much as I support you because, um, I, I, like I said, it's an honor to share with Lip Talk Nation with what you are doing and then to be the first to really research out suicidal bereavement kudos to you lip talk nation we all need to get on board so i want to know uh, melinda what are some of the obstacles that you personally had to overcome besides the you know event of your husband in order to become successful oh my goodness <laughs> well <laughs> you know it's funny because um one you know this was the biggest obstacle just grieving my husband's death. I mean, it, and it went on, and, it, and some, to some extent it still happened. You know, I still miss him. I still wonder what would have happened had he lived. We were newly married. We were only married for eight months, and so I wonder what would have happened had we reached the five-year mark or the 10-year mark or had a child or whatever. But I would have to say having that loss and the enormous um, pain that went with it, then after that nothing really surprised me. And I think some of the obstacles to my doing what I, what I felt has been my path, um, had a lot to do with just 
kind of feeling a lot of interpersonal rejection in the wake of my husband's suicide. You know, people, like I said, you know, I, I worked at sort of the highest levels of state government, and people, I could I had access to about 1,500 employees at any point in time, and I would see people in my, my building where I worked, and they would see me coming down the hallway, and they would turn and walk in the opposite direction. I mean, it was almost like I was a pariah, or something was, you know, it was it was catching or something. Um, so I think I think interpersonal rejection, that was the hardest because I was already feeling alone and rejected and abandoned uh, by my husband's suicide. I think the stigma around suicide, wanting to get involved in suicide prevention efforts after he died because I I spent about two years figuring out so what next with my life. I'd thought about a career in medicine and just realized after he killed himself that I was not going to do that and got involved in suicide prevention. And suicide is such a highly stigmatized topic. And at the time, it most certainly was. Nobody was talking about it. So I think having to take on kind of a public policy issue that was so highly stigmatized, not only did I feel the interpersonal rejection, but I felt like a real professional rejection, people telling me that we shouldn't be doing anything to prevent suicide because people who kill themselves are selfish or you know, only think of themselves or you know they get what they deserve, and all sorts of horrible cultural messages that we we have some oftentimes internalized about suicide. And then I started a nonprofit in Ohio and had difficulty funding that because again it was very difficult to fundraise around an issue that's so highly stigmatized. And so I think it was just one thing after another in terms of whether personal rejection or rejection around the issue of suicide prevention. And um, but but it's almost like with each experience, there's been a sort of a spurt of growth and a kind of a renewed commitment to what I feel has been my path in terms of raising awareness, but then also trying to provide hope to those who have been through this experience. There's nothing, in my, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, more hopeless than to lose a loved one to suicide and to think, oh, great, I have to live the rest of my life waiting to see them again. There's no hope. There's nothing, there's nothing that's going to happen from this experience that's going to be in any way salvageable or positive. And I'm not saying that people gain or grow from the loss. I'm just saying they experience enormous changes internally, and from those changes come then things like you know, appreciation for life and spiritual changes and new possibilities and relating to others differently and these other sort of domains of post-traumatic growth. So um, I would I would say there's been a lot of rejection and then a lot of cultural stigma around this issue, but it's made me stronger. It's made me more committed. And I think an, uh, an additional, if I were to create another domain or factor of post-traumatic growth, it would be really listening to yourself and really being connected with what your personal journey is and not really caring too much about what other people think. And I think that's, I mean, I'm sensitive to other people. I care what they think, but I really don't pay as much attention to other people and their own opinions about me and what I'm doing as I once did. And so while there have been huge obstacles, there have also been enormous gifts from this experience. Melinda, you just nailed it. And not that I, you know, think it's really cool that you had these struggles, your interpersonal rejection and even professional rejection. But you just said at the end of your answer, listen to yourself. And that's something that I tell Lip Talk Nation to do as well. We talk about the love, love others, love yourself, love God. And I am so glad that you said that. However, you pointed out something else that I am like on the pedestal as well when it comes to this persona of, you know, suicide. When someone commits suicide, there is this thought that, oh, they're being selfish and you just pointed it out. And that, that 
aches my soul to its very core because this person, you know, who committed suicide was struggling with something so painful. And I, you know, I, I want that persona to go away, that mindset to go away because it has to do with somebody needing help. And it's not about being selfish. So Lip Talk Nation, do if you know someone, I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you know someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts or depression, don't ever tell them that they are being selfish because that just might send them over the edge. Thank you, Melinda. That certainly hits home with myself, you know, with the interpersonal rejection. And I want to know, is there a type of person that will experience PTG more than others? Or should I say, who is most likely to experience post-traumatic growth? Well, I will tell you, in, in the research that's been done, we have found a relationship between female gender, higher socioeconomic status, people who are dispositionally optimistic, people who are open to experience, people who are more extroverted, people who tend to be more neurotic uh, or score higher, higher levels of neuroticism. They, that tends to be kind of inversely related. So people probably who are... Now, and I'm not going to say that people who are uh, depressed or have post-traumatic stress disorder they don't experience post-traumatic growth because actually in the studies that I have conducted, and, and this is actually validates other studies, you have to have a certain amount of trauma in order to have a certain amount of growth. There's what we call a curvilinear relationship between trauma and growth. And so the idea is that you have to have a certain amount of kind of this bad stuff happening to you and, and, and a certain amount of trauma in order to experience the growth. However, if you have too little, you may not experience growth. And then if you have too much, you may not experience the growth in the same, at the same level that you would experience it if you had sort of a moderate amount of trauma. So that, that is essentially, you know, uh, what happens. Uh, that's how we understand um, the sort of the relationship between certain personality factors and then other factors and the development of post-traumatic growth. Lip Talk Nation, did you hear how Melinda just described it? You have to have a certain amount of trauma to have a certain amount of growth. I really appreciate you pointing that out, you know, because I haven't done as much research as you have, but I am, you know, on the edge of my chair, right, taking all these notes because um, I want to know this information and I want Lip Talk Nation to understand what the difference is between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth. Uh, What a beautiful job you are doing, Melinda. Thank you. In your own personal journey of healing and helping others, do you have a mantra that you live by or find yourself saying positive phrases or affirmations? Or maybe I should say, what keeps you going every day to help others? You know, I I think I have my own routines and certainly um, practicing my faith is part of my routine. Um, I think, I think, for me, a practice of faith is critical to feeling nourished, nourished spiritually and feeling like I can be able, to, I can give to others. I think you have to protect your boundaries. You have to, um, I'm a, a professor, but I'm also a, a, a clinician. I have a private practice, and so I tend to, you know, work a lot, and, but I, I have to protect my boundaries, so I do things for myself. I have, I, do, I engage in a lot of self-care. I um, uh, engage in therapy uh, when I need it, um, and I also meditate as often as I can. I engage in mindfulness meditation because I think that also helps me kind of sit with difficult, either my own difficult emotions or the difficult emotions of either my students or my patients. And 
I think that gives me sort of a tolerance and an ability instead of instead of just sort of you know kind of uh, reacting. I'm able to sit with discomfort in a better way when I practice mindfulness meditation. Oh, okay, so I, again, I'm on the edge of my chair because what you just pointed out is something that I have already talked to Lip Talk Nation about is that mindfulness meditation. We recently had a guest speaking on the benefits of meditating, and I love that you pointed that out because there is a form of meditation that helps practice your willpower to continue moving on and to face you know, reality and face life. But you also pointed out that you practice your faith. I admire that so much, and, and I do too, and, and I challenge Lip Talk Nation to grab a hold of what you just said also with protecting your boundaries because you have two different things that you're doing. You're a professor and you have a practice. So these are really good tips for us to grab a hold of in Lip Talk Nation. Like I said, I hope you're taking notes. Most of us, regardless of our passion, Melinda, started out as fans of somebody else's work. So who were some of your inspirations that prompted you to start this journey? I would have to say that probably, you know, it's weird because I've always been a big, big Jane Austen fan or James Joyce fan, fan of uh, a lot of writers. Um, but I think one of the people that's really inspired me has been Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is, well, he, he was at the Abbey Gethsemane, which is here in Kentucky, for many, many years. But he also is somebody who um, not only inspires me in terms of his zest for life, because while he was a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane, you know, and very, living the life of a monk and really going inward and going on that journey that so many of us oftentimes um, don't take because it's not really valued. You know, he did work also that was very much applicable to the world. I mean, he wrote Seven Story Mountain and he's written, you know, Seeds of Contemplation and lots of amazing poetry and books, uh, No Man is an Island, just amazing things that are applicable to the world. And, you know, he died in 1968, but his writing is very much relevant today. And I also, he has um, a beautiful uh, poem about his epiphany when he was standing on the corner of, I think, 4th and Walnut in Louisville. And it's a, really about how all of mankind is joined and how he was apprehending the love that he had for mankind. And so Thomas Merton, I'm a big fan of his. I'm also a big fan of Catherine of Siena and... Mother Teresa and Pema Chodron, and so it's, I'm ecumenical when it comes to my interest in various faith leaders, but I'm also, um, you know, a big fan of jazz music and, um, you know, Carmen McRae and Billie Holiday and people like that, so um, it's it's kind of eclectic and across the board, frankly. <laughs> That's really awesome, Melinda. I, I love that you said eclectic, and and it certainly helps to have your heroes. Lip Talk Nation, very important. And I'm glad that you do have them and that you threw in music as well. I'm a, I am have a music degree, so I'm like, aha, music. <laughs> yes, and jazz, it, it is healing for the soul. So thank you again for bearing your soul with us today at Life in Purple. So we're going to move on to a different part of the show. It's called our lightning round. The questions are simple and easy to answer. So just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Melinda, are are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, it would definitely be reading other people's minds. I think that's why I became a psychologist, so I could kind of get inside people's heads. <laughs> I love it. That is a superpower I want to have too. Perfect. <laughs> How do you like your coffee? Ooh, I like my coffee with lots of uh, cream and two Splenda. 
too, Splenda. Mm -hmm. Make sure you get that Lip Talk Nation. She needs two in her cup of coffee. Check it out. (laughs) All right. Melinda, what is your most embarrassing moment? Oh, my goodness. There have been so many. But the one most embarrassing moment was in a professional capacity when I was executive director of a national suicide prevention organization, and I had to give a major speech to a lot of people in the audience that were policymakers and leaders in this field. And I was so anxious that I'm pretty certain I fumbled my way through the speech. And I came off that podium thinking, I'm never giving another talk ever again. (laughs) That's my most embarrassing moment. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm so glad you recovered. You definitely don't seem like that you would be the nervous type at all. So kudos to you for conquering. Thank you. (laughs) Check you out. Okay, so what is your favorite hobby? Ooh, I have two favorite hobbies. My first one is uh, dog agility training with my Cocker Spaniel, my black Cocker Spaniel Claudette. Every Wednesday night, we go to dog school and we run circuits and then occasionally we compete in agility trials. And that is definitely my number one favorite hobby. And my second, very close second favorite hobby is uh, collecting rescued rabbits. I have, for a long period of time now, had a collection of about four to five rescued rabbits at any point in time in my house. And rabbits are some of the best things in the world, and I love the little rescued rabbits that I have living with me. Okay, Lip Talk Nation, go ahead and say it. Aw, how cute. So uh, Lip Talk Nation knows this, Melinda, that looking at your favorite baby animal produces oxytocin. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it right here. You just um, you just produced oxytocin for your body, taking care of those <laughs> baby rabbits. How great is that? All right, so what is your favorite movie? Ooh, my favorite movie of all time is probably, it's a pretty old one, pretty dated one. Uh, it's called Moonstruck, uh, uh, starring Cher. Um, it was um, and Nicolas Cage, two of my favorite actors. But I think probably the reason it's my favorite is because it's so funny, so well-written, and contains opera, which I love, and also the, uh, the main character I really identified with at the time that I saw it. So I really, that movie still resonates with me, and I still love watching it. Boom. I love funny movies, too. Thank you, Melinda, for sharing that one. Now it's time to tell us what your favorite color is. Oh, any shade of pink. I love any shade of pink, including Pepto-Bismol pink. And I love it so much that I painted the interior of my house, um, the living room, and the bedroom pink because it's just I cannot get enough of pink. (laughs) This is really great. My daughter, who's only six, loves every shade of pink, too. So she is super excited, and you all should get together, definitely. Pepto-Bismol pink. That's awesome. Okay, thank you so much, Melinda, for letting us get to know you on a fun level. Do you have any final words of encouragement for the listeners who are struggling with their own obstacles? Yeah, I mean, I would say don't stay silent. Reach out. Um, There are a couple of resources online that are excellent if you are having thoughts of suicide or know somebody who's having thoughts of suicide. It's really important to reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline. Uh, It is a a 1-800 number, 24 by 7, confidential toll-free number, 1-800-273-TALK, which is 1-800-273-8255. Um, They also have a website, um, and then also uh, you can find out more about post-traumatic growth on my website, www.posttraumaticgrowth.com. 
Thank you so much, Melinda. It really has been an honor to have you on the show. Here we go, Lip Talk Nation. Dr. Melinda Moore. She is the founder of posttraumaticgrowth.com. Melinda, thank you for spending time with us at Life in Purple, where the broken can heal and the successful can conquer. Again, it's been a pleasure hearing your story and letting our listeners glean value from your experience. Lip Talk Nation, if you have enjoyed today's episode, or one of our previous episodes, I would love to hear from you. And if you're an iPhone user, go on over to iTunes and leave a friendly review. And for Android users, send me a quick email to lara at larasprague.com. We appreciate you and we'll see you soon. And as always, what you say is what you become.